As the words in the national anthem say, the flag was still there. Fourth of July, 2021. Where are we, America? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Hey, it's the 4th of July, a uniquely American holiday. For most citizens, though not all, it's a time of loud celebration, fireworks being the most notable tradition. 4th of July 2021 provides additional reasons to celebrate semi-victory over COVID, and the man who was shockingly successful at dissembling our structures of democracy is gone, whether he knows it or not. America barely pulled through its greatest existential threat since World War II. Barely. But in the wake of that success, is the democracy our founders created now safe? Not hardly. Well, there are incredibly powerful forces focused like a laser on replacing a Republican system of government, our very democracy, with autocratic religious nationalism. And they actually wave the American flag as, though, as they so relentlessly attack America. It's amazing, with no small degree of success in those attacks. And with the understanding that their radical right anti-American agenda cannot hope to triumph through the normal electoral process, since they're not winning on ideas, they have adopted a strategy of circumventing the democratic process, taking over, packing the courts throughout this vast country. And yes, they are achieving their goals of whittling away our treasured rights, reproductive rights, religious freedom, equal rights for all, no matter race, religion, or gender identification, and extremely dangerously, having learned from the backlash against blatantly racist Jim Crow laws, these anti-democratic forces are hard at work all over the country putting new 21st century versions of Jim Crow voting restrictions aimed squarely at African Americans in place in state after state. Perhaps the most ominous aspect of this came on the 1st of July, when the Supreme Court okayed Arizona's new voting restrictions. That enables other states to continue. Today, perhaps more than at any other time, there's a massive threat to our foundational right to vote. On this July 4th, it's crucial to recognize that we all have a role to play in keeping democracy alive. The very term United States of America from the start has always been aspirational. We may be one country, but we are many nations. In many ways, though the Southern nation was defeated militarily, they never gave up. Their racism has been built in, up, and down our legal economic system, and their religious nationalist views have steadily grown more powerful over America. Our founders intended us to be the subject of no one, yet in many ways we are. Yes, the term United States remains aspirational. Perhaps a majority of our black citizens most understandably do not feel that the 4th is their holiday. I remain patriotic and concerned, believing deeply in our founding principles like probably everyone listening. We know that there are great challenges to our continued existence as a republic, and there are great opportunities to do our part as citizens to take back our democracy and reach, as always, for what Lincoln said to create a more perfect union. Patriotism is not blind nationalistic boosterism. As one of our greatest Americans, Emma Goldman, said back in 1917, the kind of patriotism we represent is the kind of patriotism which loves America with open eyes.
Our relation toward America is the same as the relation of a man who loves a woman who is enchanted by her beauty and yet who cannot be blind to her defects. So let's take the fourth as a time to, yes, celebrate as we reflect on America's promise and the work that needs to be done. Our guest on Keeping Democracy Alive today is Alan Brownfield, who has written a column titled Celebrating America on July 4th, a time to confront the complexity of our history. Alan Brownfield, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you. It's a great, great pleasure to be be with you. As one of the great things about America is that we are free to disagree or agree. There may be some things on which you and I disagree. Alan Brownfield is a nationally syndicated columnar, columnist and is editor of Issues, the quarterly journal of the American Council for Judaism. The author of five books, he has served on the staff of U.S. Senate, House of Representatives, the Office of the Vice President. He's contributing editor to the St. Croix Review and Washington Report on Middle East affairs. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> There's a remarkable wisdom expressed by our many guests, which I and I hope the listener this, to this show have gained through the years. On one show, a guest advised that we should think with history. Imagine if we actually learn from history in just our foreign policy, for example. A lot of more people would be whole today. As you write, our society is facing a growing examination of our history with the focus largely on our shortcomings. I'm greatly encouraged to see the increased interest in learning our true history nowadays. What examples of this growing examination do you see that you think are important? Well, I I think it's very important to focus, as we have been doing, on race relations. But I think we're making a serious mistake in overstating the case. For example, the New York Times 1619 history project that has been the subject of much discussion is, in my opinion, rather off base. Because because what it does is say that one of the reasons for the American Revolution was to defend slavery. As it was. no, I, this is not really the case because the American Revolution was most popular in New England. People like John Adams and yes. Samuel Adams in Boston, and these were people that were vigorously against slavery. Very much so. As yeah. you see in my in my column, I am critical of the framers of the Constitution for not having eliminated slavery at the very beginning. But it is a mistake, in my opinion, to argue that the American Revolution was fought in behalf of slavery. And and beyond this, many people speak about slavery today as if people say it's America's original sin. Well, slavery is hardly original to America. Slavery existed in ancient Greece, in Rome. In 1787, when the Constitution was written, there was not one country in the world that had made slavery illegal. The first country to make slavery illegal was Denmark, and that was in the 1780s. After it was after after 1787. So if the founding fathers had looked around the world for an example 
of a country that had made slavery illegal, they couldn't find one. I mean, slavery is a horrible thing, but if you read the Bible, both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, slavery is endorsed. In the book of Leviticus, the children of Israel are told to enslave those around them and keep them slaves forever. So slavery is a horrible, horrible thing, but it's hardly a uniquely American phenomenon. Well, they could, they, they chose, the, the founders knew, especially the people from New England, which actually considered seceding because of slavery later on, but they knew that uh, when they were gathering the, uh, the, the momentum to uh, gain our independence from, from uh, Britain, that if they did something about slavery, uh, it would be very, very difficult to unite all the 13 colonies. You know, I used to think that slavery was an ugly aberration. Yeah, it was only in the South. But the truth is, the entire country's economy depended on slavery. And racism against the indigenous people of America is also part of our identity, settling the West. At this time of America's birthday, which is there's much to celebrate, there's much we still need to address. History doesn't move in a straight line. How, how, we, we, what deserves, I think there's a lot that deserves celebration. I remain deeply patriotic. Uh, what, what in your mind, you know, and, and I'm certainly a liberal with capital L, whatever, but uh, what deserves celebration about this country? Because there's a lot we got to learn and change. Well, the founding fathers really created something new in history. Today, in 2021, America is the only country that is living under the same form of government which existed 234 years ago. Countries like Italy and Germany didn't even exist right. when the Constitution was written. America, from the very beginning, had religious freedom, the First Amendment. And it was said in the Constitution, there shall be no religious test right. for public office. There's no other country in the world at that time that had religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Protestants living in Catholic countries were not free. Catholics living in Protestant countries were not free. Jews served under disabilities in both places. So America was unique. No country in the world started out with the idea of religious freedom. And this was an extraordinary, extraordinary thing. And in America, even before the Constitution was written and America declared independence, there was largely religious freedom. I'll give you an example. I live in Virginia. Mm -hmm. In the colonial days, the Anglican Church was the official church of Virginia. A few blocks from my house is a church called the Old Presbyterian Meeting House. It was from that church that George Washington's funeral took place. It was called the Old Presbyterian Meeting House because when the Anglican Church was the official church of Virginia, no other religious institution could call itself a church. But that didn't mean they couldn't meet and pray freely. Yeah. I mean, so even before religious freedom was formally established, there was largely religious freedom. So that's one of the extraordinary things about America. And never before in history had people gathered freely together 
to write a constitution which limited the power of government. And this was extraordinary. It was something new in history. So I think we have to give people credit for the ground they broke, not for the mistakes they made. And also, the framers of the Constitution knew very well that it would have to be changed, that there were many problems yet to be resolved. That's why they put in the amending process. I mean, so, I I mean, I think the, the Constitution was an extraordinary achievement. And unfortunately, many people that are commenting about our history are only looking at its shortcomings. Like we hear it said repeatedly that America is guilty of structural racism. And I'm not exactly sure what that means. But I lived in the South during the years of segregation. And I remember segregation. I remember separate waiting rooms for white and black travelers at bus stations sure. and airports. I remember when a black family got in its car to take a trip, would have no idea where it could use the restroom or get a cup of coffee. I mean, this this was a terrible thing. And I'll tell you a story that at one time when I was teaching at the University of Maryland, I was teaching courses off campus at the Pentagon. And the first day I came to the Pentagon to teach my class, an officer was accompanying me and showing me to my room. I said, as we walked down the hallway, why are there so many restrooms in the Pentagon? Here's a men's room. Right next to it is another men's room. Here's a ladies' room. Right next to it is another ladies' room. Why is this? He said, well, the Pentagon was built in Virginia in the years of segregation. There are separate restrooms for white and black men and white and black women. And this was extraordinary to me at the time. Well, so so we had this terrible period of segregation, which followed the end of slavery. But then we had the civil rights movement. We had the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Which is a real threat. Yeah, go ahead. I mean, and then we elected a black president twice, and we've had black chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, black secretaries of state. There is nothing in America today that any American, regardless of race or background, cannot achieve. If we were indeed guilty of structural racism, we would not have made all these positive changes and move forward. I mean, this is not to say we don't have serious problems still to resolve, as the George Floyd case indicates. We need dramatic police reform. Yes. I mean, we need many things to change in America. But I think we've made... I mean, in, in my lifetime, we've made extraordinary progress. Yes. In my, so, in my, yeah, too. so, go ahead. So, I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist about yes. the future. I see how far we've come in one lifetime, and there's no reason to think we will not fo- move forward in the future. 
If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a heavy lift, folks, but we have to do it. Our guest today is uh, uh, Alan Brownfield, who uh, has written an article about the 4th of July, celebrating America on July 4th, a time to confront the complexity of our history. Now, I have to take some degree of issue. I don't think it's so much structural racism, but systemic. It is, it's not nearly, I mean, I, I hear people say, you know, well, there's very little racism. Now, we don't see the Ku Klux Klan. It's much, you know, and there's no uh, 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 Jim Crow laws, on, you know, but it's much more subtle. There's 21st century versions of it. There's, and to say, well, we got a black president and we got a black uh, head of, of uh, the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, you know, there are people who, who have disabilities who are amazing. They rise above the disabilities. But you, I think it's terribly wrong to say, well, we don't have, you know, people with disabilities don't have problems. I mean, yes, there are some extraordinary people that make it out of there, like Barack Obama, like uh, uh, the, the new uh, uh, defense head. Uh, but in general, I mean, there's still... This tremendous discriminatory lending procedures that banks have adopted that systemize racism. No, it's not direct redlining as much as it used to be. It's not that obvious, but they are indeed real. And they are two systems of justice. I don't think anybody can deny that. There's one system of justice for white people with money and another for everybody else. To me, that is systemic racism. There's Our jails are bursting because of clearly racist mass incarceration. The new boogeyman is critical race theory, which is, I think, rather succinctly defined as a method of examining how the law perpetuates racial injustice. It, I'd, I'd love your reaction on that. I, I, you know, they don't want to teach history. I just wanted to, uh, th th there was somebody on, uh, on Facebook who said, uh, let's all work to get critical race theory and diversity, equity, inclusion out of schools. It has zero business being there. It's the, here's the classic line. It's there to destroy children's belief system. They want to have beliefs triumph over actual history, which... Uh, well, know. I think I think I think that critical race theory and these other ideas are really the opposite of what Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement had in mind. Whoa. Martin Martin Luther King said repeatedly that the goal of the civil rights movement was to create a colorblind society in which men and women would be judged on the content right. of their character, right. not the color of their skin. Yet today we're talking about race all the time. And I don't think it's helpful to advancing good relations between Americans of various backgrounds to constantly be discussing race. We must treat people as individuals. And I think that that was the proper goal of the civil rights movement. And I think be, beyond this, that what we're, we're missing is the uniqueness of America. America is not a country of people with common background, common ethnicity, right. common religion, many common nations. race. Yes. I remember I used to lecture to students at Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And one of the points I 
always made was the uniqueness of American nationality. And I told the story of a congressional delegation that was in Tokyo. And one of the members of the congressional delegation was Spark Matsunaga, a congressman from Hawaii, a Japanese-American. And when the Japanese and American delegations left the hotel one morning, Spark Matsunaga was immediately ushered into the bus for the Japanese delegates. And Carl Albert, then Speaker of the House, ran up and said, no, no, he's one of ours. He's one of ours. And people have made this point repeatedly that when the delegation to an international event from Sweden comes, there are all these blonde-haired, blue-eyed people. When a delegation from America comes, there are people of every race, every ethnicity, every background. And that was a line I actually put in my column, was the lyric of Kurt Weil, the lyricist who had to escape from Nazi Germany because he was Jewish. Mm -hmm. And he wrote, wrote a song called Every Name is an American Name. I think this is what makes America truly unique. I remember years ago, I was interviewing a Romanian mathematician who was visiting in Washington. And I said, what do you think of America? He said, in Romania, everyone's Romanian. Here, everybody's something else. He said, it's the most fascinating place I've ever been. To me, I, I can't disagree with you. This, that's all, I, there's nothing to disagree with. Except, but I do think, you know, as Lincoln said, uh, toward a more perfect union, it is aspirational. Yes, there, we are technically and very realistically uh, many different people from many different nations. Certainly under Woodrow Wilson, and to me this is what's important in, in looking at real history. A lot of people don't want to look at real history. The fact is, under Woodrow Wilson, there was great discrimination against what he called hyphenated Americans. There was not just discrimination, there was terror against them. And, you know, racism, critical race theory, is defended by virtually all uh, history professors. The American Historical Association is fighting hard against its crushing. What? What is? I mean, there are things we have overcome. There's no question about it. But we still have a ways to go. And even it's still it's important to face history and to face ourselves. We, this is you know racism was not an aberration in America, not at all, and it still exists in in banks, lending systems, in so many different ways. And these new laws, uh, the, the allowing twenty uh, first century Jim Crow in in voting rights. I mean, they're trying to do away with the wonderful nineteen sixty five voting rights, <clears throat> excuse me, act that uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, signed to his great credit, and therefore created a situation where, you know, today, not all Republicans are racist, but all racists are Republican because they left the party because Lyndon Johnson did that. The point is, we have to learn history. And critical race theory is, I don't know why they call it theory. It's not a theory. It's our history. And we need to learn that, I think, to be stronger. I mean, how can we you know, we don't want to be, you know, as this woman on uh, Facebook said, uh, it's that that uh, this his kind of history is there to destroy children's belief system. And to me, that's one of the big issues right now that uh, uh, Trump people uh, believe 
they don't they think he was sent by God to be the autocratic ruler of the United States. No understanding of I mean they claim the constitution and the flag, but they have no understanding of it. They have they want to enforce this belief system. I how can it not be important to understand that there was in fact redlining throughout the 20th century that there is in fact discriminatory laws now in terms of bank lending. How can, we have to learn from history. I mean you can't just fake it. Response, please. No, no, I, 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 I agree with you. Redlining is a terrible thing. Uh, I mean, I agree that there has been racism, but there and has still been, is. Yeah. No, but there has been historically attacks against all sorts of groups. When you have a country of over three hundred million people of every race, religion, background, there's obviously going to be tension. I remember in New York City being pointed to a Catholic church that had been burned right yeah. in the Chinatown area. I mean, Catholics were viewed, the whole, the, the Know Nothing Party was right. basically created to oppose Catholic immigrants because we were told that the Pope would then be running America. There was a, a terrible degree of anti Catholic discrimination. The Irish, the Italians, met extraordinary yep. discrimination. Yes. I mean, what was done with the Japanese Americans, of course, yep. in World War II was a horrible thing. But Americans have to look at the world. I mean, they're not comparing America with other places. Like right within the last two months or so, we've seen a great deal of soul searching in Canada about the mistreatment of indigenous people at schools where hundreds of bodies have been found. In Germany, they're only now coming to grips with the slaughter of black Africans in Namibia, which was in German Southwest Africa in about 1900. I mean, the horrors that have been inflicted on people because of race and religion is not a uniquely American phenomenon. This in England, the Dutch, the French during the colonial period, period mistreated people because of their race and religion on a massive basis. It's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. In fact, that's a theological question I have always asked my friends who are ministers. Said why? Why did not? Why did God not create a better creature than this? Hmm. And I've never, I've never received a good answer except man cannot understand God's ways. Maybe in the next world, this will be revealed to us. So I agree with you about all the horrors that have taken place in America, but these horrors take place everywhere where there are people of different races and religions I, and nationalities living together. I mean, we, in Asia, yes, this has happened repeatedly oh, yeah. against the Chinese living in Indonesia, in Malaya, and in, in other countries. So what makes America, I think, unique historically is that we've come tried to come to grips with all of these things. Yes. And do you know that in the in the colonial era, before the English took over New York when it was New Amsterdam, 
18 languages were being spoken in New Amsterdam at that time. I mean, America was a very complicated place from the begin- very beginning. It attracted men and women of every background and gave them freedom, more or less, not without problems, right. not without problems, but it's still, I think, an extraordinary achievement. Oh, no question. About, I mean, I suppose some people could question that, but I sure don't. I mean, I feel very patriotic. The principles, the values that we have in this country, I think, you know, make me extremely proud. And of course, there have been many languages spoken and many languages still spoken. And, you know, I, I, I think, you know, as what Lincoln said, that we are here to form a more perfect union. We are aspirational. We are Americans. We can do something about this. Do I like what the Chinese are doing to the Uyghurs? Heck no. You know, and what's going on in Myanmar, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Israel to the Palestinians. It's, you know, but, but we live here. We need, in my opinion, to learn our history, to feel proud of what we should feel proud of, but not to sweep it under the rug. The people who are against teaching American history, I mean, the the American Historical Association, not exactly a radical left group, they're fighting back against the reactive effort to crush the teaching of history. And it's really quite a battle. And it seems like, I mean, these are political realities that we're facing now. And there's the right wing. You know, you talk about freedom of religion. There, it's a big one. As you say, one of the unprecedented breakthroughs, which the framers included in the Constitution, was there would be no, as you said, religious test for public officers for citizenship. End of your quote. As a child of the 50s, I never, ever would have expected how vast the belief is that America is a Christian nation. You know it, and I know it. A lot of people believe that, and they think that Trump was sent by God. That used to be something only the really far right-wingers of the Southern nation would believe. But powerful forces are openly trying to transform our republic into a Christian nation, what they define as a Christian nation. That is really frightening. And here on the 4th of July, it seems to me, we got to fight that. The world woke up to Don, who Donald Trump was when he tried to impose a Muslim ban. There's increased anti-Semitism lately. This tide of you know autocratic religious nationalism is not America. I agree with you entirely. And let me just put on my other hat as okay. editor of Issues, the American Council for Judaism publication. Uh-huh. The philosophy of the American Council for Judaism is that Judaism is a religion of universal values, not in any way a nationality. Yes. And the state of Israel claims to be the homeland of all Jews. This, in our opinion, is an outrageous declaration because the homeland of American Jews is the United States. Absolutely. Yep. And when the first reform synagogue in America was opened in 1841 in Charleston, South Carolina. The rabbi declared, this city is our Jerusalem. Mm. This country is our Palestine. And what I regret is that in Israel, which I wish I wish Israel well, but mm. I regret the fact that people who suffered persecution under the Nazis would then persecute 
another people. And I regret the fact that American Jews who believe deeply in separation of church and state and religious freedom support a society in Israel which has no religious freedom for non-Orthodox Jews. A A reform rabbi and the majority of Jewish Americans are reformed. A reform rabbi has no right in Israel to perform a wedding, a funeral, or a conversion. The irony is that American Jews are vigorous supporters of strict separation of church and state in America, but support of theocracy in Israel. But those are just among the ironies of history. Well, I yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I this this is my home. I I love America. I love being Jewish. You know, our we've always we have a great tradition as Jews of being you know uh, standing up for justice and against racism, and it's some of which I'm really proud. And uh, this is this is our country here, and th- th- we are we are not a Christian nation for sure. I'm concerned. I very, very strongly believe in the separation of church and state. It's one of the absolute rock-solid foundations of our country. And I'm really concerned what's happening now. You know, there are powerful forces, I said, to transform our republic into a Christian nation. And they now the Supreme Court, there's the six people. I mean, they change. You know, we've seen throughout history, right-wingers on the court can change once they get there. But... uh, I see a, a much more of a threat to separation of church and state now, I think, than I ever have in my uh, 70 years of existence on this planet. What, what's your, can well, can I, this be turned I, back? I, I, well, I, I think it can be turned back, Bert, because the demographics are against it. The white evangelicals, who are the promoters of some of those ideas, yes are an increasingly declining percentage of the population. I think that most most Americans do not want to see any diminution of the separation of church and state. And I think, of course, as yeah. you say, it's ironic that someone like Donald Trump, who never sees the inside of a church <laughs> in his life, would go in front uh. of St. Saint, Saint John's Episcopal Church Without their permission, with a Bible upside, carrying a Bible upside down, and yet it's uh, amazing to me how how people believe that. And for those who may have just tuned in, it's Bert Cohen here on Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today, we're having a lively discussion about the meaning of the Fourth of July, what there is to celebrate about America on the Fourth of July. Our guest is Ellen Brownfield. A time to confront the complexity of our history, and you know, self government. It ain't easy. It's democracy is not a spectator sport. Being a subject is much easier than being a citizen. A citizen means participating. You know, you, being a subject is entirely different. Your column quotes Mortimer Adler from his book, We Hold These Truths. He says, the government of the United States resides in us, we the people. What resides in Washington is the administration of our government. I'm sorry to say that most Americans think of themselves as the subjects of government and regard the administrators and public offices as their rulers. End of his quote. I absolutely see that. And you know, I find it fascinating that uh, in the Europe-wide revolutions of 1848, 
when there was a pre-Marxist uh, rising up of lower-income people, well, they didn't even have income, uh, the aristocrats' strongest and most important defenders were the powerless peasants. I think because they felt comfortable. It was scary to consider anything yeah. else. It was comfortable to be a subject. Too, far too many Americans today prefer to hail a dictator wannabe, a hero figure. Let him decide everything. He was sent by God. That is the well, antithesis of American democratic tradition. Why do we accept that? What are the forces involved which stood to gain and still stand to gain from that belief? Well, let me tell you what I think is the worst thing that's been happening. Because I worked in the Congress for many years. And I was, I worked for one Democrat, Senator Thomas Dodd of Connecticut. Oh, good man. But I mainly worked for Republicans. Ah. And I worked as assistant to the research director of the House Republican Study Committee. And on that committee, when they were members of Congress, was George H.W. Bush and Gerald Ford. I met with them every week. These were two of the finest people I've ever worked with. They did not view the Democrats as enemies. Their basic goal was to convince the Democrats that the legislation they were proposing was best for the country. In the years I worked in the Congress, there were always coalitions of Republicans and Democrats working together on different issues that they believed in. Today, we have this extreme partisanship where someone like Mitch McConnell can publicly declare that his goal is for the president of the United States, because he is of the other party, to fail. In all the years I was in the Congress, I never heard anyone express the desire that our government fail mm. because it was in the hands of the other party. So this kind of partisanship is something that is really new. I mean, no one ever viewed the other party as enemies. Right. I mean, I remember all of our discussions. I worked also for Jack Kemp, the congressman from New York, Republican. Yep. I mean, his, his goal always was, which Democrats can we get on our side on this subject or that subject? They weren't attacking the Democrats. They were courting them to get their support for legislation they were promoting. That's amazing. What different so times to me, they were. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, to me, that is the great problem that we have today is this narrow, narrow partisanship that the Republicans are exhibiting. I mean, as I said, I've worked for many years for many Republicans, and I have not voted Republican now for many years. Well, it's, there, just it's a very, no longer very the same party. No, it is no longer the same party. You and I are old enough to remember, I think, when the John Birch Society was considered extreme right. Huh. I think they are left of where the Republican Party is nowadays. It's just astounding. I never would have thought of that. It's just I remember. I remember the John Birch's house. I'll tell you a very brief story. Sure. One summer, summer when I was in law school, I was working in the California State Legislature for Jesse Unruh, the Speaker oh. of the House. Huh. Who was a Democrat? Sure. And the, the John Birch Society was then launching a campaign against a book in the California schools called the Dictionary of American Slang. 
And what they did was reprint all of the obscene words from the book in a piece of literature, <laughs> and we're distributing it. It's fast. This was, these were insane times. Those 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 times. Well, it reminds me of in this recent election when a lot of the Trumpists, Republicans, were obsessed with insisting that all Democrats were pedophiles. And it's like, what? Where did you get that? And I, I think, I can't help but think, the only conclusion I can come to is that they were obsessed with that and that they had this unique uh, fascination with this bizarre thing. And yet, pff, I mean, it obviously wasn't real, yet they, they believed it. And, you know, belief is the, is the worry to me that, you know, for example, I mean, as you were talking, I was thinking about January 6th when the people there they, these people who were attacking America, the center of America, were holding American flags, and they they were anti-American as far as I'm concerned, and there are still a lot of people out there. Here we are, 4th of July, 2021, and there are people who think, somehow believe that the, you know, they want to, their beliefs trump reality, and it just... I, without education, I, and the Democrats, I think, are largely to blame because they abandoned the people in the less densely populated areas. And I think that's a huge mistake here. And we, when I was in the New Hampshire Senate, I was a de I'm still a Democrat, but there were a lot of Republicans. We got along. They were the the opponent, but not the enemy. As as Ben Franklin allegedly said, I don't know if he did. When asked what kind of government the framers have given us, he said, "As you know, what I'm going to say, a republic." If you can keep it, I, I, I well, wonder, well, have that's, we? That's, I think the American well, experiment's we've, in we've, trouble. We've, we've kept it so far. It is in trouble, but I'm I'm still an optimist. I think that some of this will pass. We do face some unique problems with the internet, social media. No, that's for sure. Making it making it possible for crazy people in each part of the country to get together when otherwise they would have been isolated. Mm. Need to have this theory, as you mentioned, the QAnon theory of uh, pedophiles, complete insanity. Yes. You remember when this man came to a pizza restaurant in Washington, oh. which I frequently have visited. Yeah, I've heard it's good pizza. And, and was looking, was shooting it up and was saying there were pedophiles and children in the basement, but the restaurant had no basement. These are insane ideas, and it's the social media that gives them national currency and helps to organize these people. We've never faced this before, so it is it is a serious a serious threat. And I've wondered. I used to think that that the internet would be a really democratizing uh, tool, that it gives more people a base, that more people can participate in, uh, in government and, and decision-making. But credibility, I mean, people can just make things up. And uh, I wonder, you know, it, how much of a threat that is. And you're right, connecting with people who used to be isolated, uh, it's, you know, and this country is not, you know, back when the when their country was formed, when they got their independence, uh, which was not yet the United States, the population was about four million. Now it's about three hundred thirty million. Um, and I just I wonder, you know, with so many people and such, you know, it's more than democracy. It's 
frankly, like anarchism just out there, just, you know, no, uh, no structure to it. Just anybody can see anything and can see millions of eyes. Uh, are we, st are we perhaps too big to govern now? I mean, when it was founded or 4 million, now there's almost 10 times that well, I, still capable of governing ourselves. I, I think, I think, I think we are. And I, I, and I think the, the good thing that, that happened was that despite Donald Trump's efforts to reverse the results of a free election, he was stymied because Republican official election officials in Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Arizona all upheld the election. And Vice President Pence did not follow Donald Trump's wishes. And I mean, so there are still maybe enough Republicans that believe in the system. I don't know. <laughs> I I don't know, but but it's it's horrible. It's horrible to think of the Republican leader of the Senate openly declaring that he wants the president of the United States to fail. It and, it goes on and on and on. And I hope you're right that you know we'll see with the uh, indictments finally starting relative to the Trump organization. But of course, that's going to be a tremendous organizing tool for the Trumpists. They're going to say, oh, it's just political. You know, the law. Well, what does that matter? Go ahead. I just read an article I'd like to mention in the Wall Street Journal about John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th, 50 years after 1776. They had been vigorous political opponents. Yes. But for 14 years, they corresponded with one another on a regular basis, explaining their differences and ended up as close friends. Yeah. People should be able to disagree without being disagreeable. In a democratic society, it's only right that we would have differences of opinion about public issues. But that should not make us enemies. Right. I mean, so I'm optimistic we will get back to that that philosophy. Yeah, that certainly uh, uh, was the case when I was in the state senate. And to think that they're enemies now, I I hope we can get back to that. We'll see what happens with with the Trumpists and the power that this one guy has. And again, you know, it's it's troubling to see you know somebody who people believe sent by God. And, uh, you know, those guys were friends when I was in the state Senate. Some of my best friends were people with whom I disagreed on lots of things. Some of the people on my side, eh, not so much. But, you know, it's, it, that's what democracy is supposed to be. That's what a republic is supposed to be, republic of the people. And, of course, we're supposed to be majority rule. But the fact is, congressional Democrats get more votes across the country than Republicans do. But thanks to clever gerrymandering, the Republican minority has disproportionate power. And more redistricting is just ahead. As you know, how concerned are you about the effects of that on the lifespan very, of democracy? Well, I've always been very concerned. And I, I think that redistricting should be in the hands of nonpartisan commissions, yes. as, they are, as it is now in several states. But my view has always been that money should be taken out of politics. Yes. I've always believed in public financing of campaigns so that special interest groups would not have extraordinary influence over politicians. Mm. 
the Supreme Court by making it constitutional to have unlimited spending has really subverted our... We've been talking about changing that and, you know, affecting Citizens United, that awful decision, for a long time. I don't know. I, I, I don't sense any real trajectory for that. And it's a big deal when it comes to actual democracy and a Republican form of government. You know, I think one can see that the Republicans are starting to see that Trump is, you know, kind of wacko and that they should move away from that and not be, you know, so threatened by him. But the idea of limiting money in government, it seems like most people support that, but it doesn't seem to be happening. That's yet another example of the obscene power of money in politics. Well, there are so there are so many. Well, that's one thing. The other thing, you know, problem on on the horizon is our gun question i wrote a column about this some time ago when when i was in law school no one suggested that the second amendment meant that any citizen could have any kind of gun at any time my father was a businessman he often had to carry large amounts of cash he lived in new york city in New York City, to have a gun, you had to go before a judge and explain why you needed the gun. My father did that. He got a license. He had a gun. That was considered, when I was in law school, that was considered fully consistent with the Second Amendment. This idea now that people could have assault rifle, which are weapons of war, is completely insane. It has nothing to do, if you read the Second Amendment, it says very clearly that to raise a militia. Yes, that is what the rest of the sentence modifies, that phrase. But they... Right. <laughs> they don't, I mean, I laugh at it, but people are dying from this stuff. And, you know, I do believe that the vast majority of Americans, you know, want to stop this, you know, ridiculous, outrageous bloodshed in the streets and, and you know, get these weapons of war off the streets. But there's the power of the money. You know, the, the NRA ain't what it used to be, but they still have a lot of power. So this is yet another example of democracy. Well, surviving. but even, in, even Justice Scalia, before he died in the decision, said that states and cities have the right to modify the Second Amendment as they had done in New York to determine exactly who will have the right to have weapons. It's completely insane for conservatives who say they believe in the original intent of the Constitution to completely ignore the wording of the Second Amendment. And Scalia, interesting guy. And there's an example of right and left being friends. Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg were good friends. Right, that's the way it used to be. That's the way it should be. I do find it interesting that Scalia claimed the mantle of originalism, and the founders are all quite, quite dead. No one can really know the intent. And some truly radical right-wingers find that word convenient, and they hide behind it. It sounds so patriotic. Your thoughts on originalism? Well, I think it's interesting to consider exactly what the framers of the Constitution meant with what they, they wrote. But times change and events change and situations are altered. So I don't think you have to be completely captive to that. But the original intent of the Second Amendment was certainly not what we have today. 
where people can simply walk into a gun shop and purchase an assault weapon. I mean, this uh, is completely irrational. If you if you look at the number of killings by guns in the United States and you compare yeah, that with any other Western country, it's shocking. It really is. And you write, in my opinion, quite accurately that America is not finished. It is still changing and moving forward. The 4th of July celebrates this unique contribution to advancing human liberty. End of your quote. It's 2021. And with the now codified practice of voter suppression, which is surely going to continue, the election of 2022 portends a possibly a great withering of our democracy if, you know, the, the voter suppression, which is going on in all states, I think 48 of them almost, it's a real threat to, to democracy. The force is now targeting the teaching of history as interfering in belief. How confident are you that we can, as the title of this show is, keep democracy alive? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that we can keep, keep democracy alive. Because one of the things that happens, as we saw in Georgia, two Democratic senators were elected in Georgia because people came out in reaction to what the Republicans were doing. So it's entirely possible that in states like Arizona, huge numbers of people will find their way to the polls to reject the efforts to limit the vote. You can never be sure what what the reaction will be to all of this. And I'm confident that our changing demographics are going to alter things dramatically. And I think that Republicans, by playing to the Trump base rather than appealing to the new demographic that will be the majority in the country, are doing themselves a great deal of harm. I don't think it's really very smart politics on their part. So I'm I'm confident that our society will continue to grow and thrive and democracy will be not not as it was, but even better in the future. That's my hope. I remain an optimist too. I have to. And I think yeah, sometimes I'm reminded, you know, when, when the Trumpists want to stop the demographic change, they're terrified of the demographic change. I'm reminded of that king who tried to hold back the tide. Fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. And uh, happy 4th of July. How can people uh, keep track of uh, your writings? Is there something on that uh, evil internet? If you just put my name into Google, I think all my columns will, will pop up. Great. And that's uh, Alan C. Broomfield. Brownfeld. Uh, Brownfeld. It's B-R-O-W-N-F-E-L-D. Yeah. Okay. I was confusing you with some of my relatives. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, happy 4th of July to everybody.